please open up our Gospel of Luke, and we're in chapter 7, and I'll be reading from verse 24 through to verse 35 from the New International Version. Luke 7, 24 to 35. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. <coughs> Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right, because they had been baptised by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves, because they had not been baptised by John. Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. But John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that we're looking at it in our own language that we can understand. We think of the kids as they look at it at the, in their own language and also at their own level as well. We pray that we would all be learning to trust Jesus more. Lord, we ask that as we look at Luke's Gospel, we pray that you would show us Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes I miss engineering. I've got to admit it. Engineering is just so simple, it's just connecting wires. There's nothing complicated about that. If you're putting on a new distributor, well, you just work out what the load is on each of the the line's going out, and if you're not sure, add a bit more, put a buffer in there, over-design a little. If you're working out the protection settings on a long overhead line through bushland, it's just, you crunch the numbers and out comes the answer. Engineering, it was, it was just so simple, just connecting things together and turning them on, turning them off. But people, we're so much more complicated, aren't we? People are so much more complicated. We, we're unpredictable. 
we're seemingly irrational at times. What comes out of our mouth may not be connected at all with what we're really thinking, but out it comes. Throw in some kind of emotions in there, maybe some anger, maybe a bit of anxiety. Add in a bit of guilt, maybe stir in some gullibility, maybe some stubbornness or some insecurity. You put all that together, and yeah, joining wires together. So much easier. I mean, think about this for example. When was one of those times when you had an argument with someone? Sorry, when you had a discussion with someone, a heated discussion, where you very much held your point of view and they very much held their point of view, and so you put their, your point, they put their point, you put yours, they put theirs, before they finish putting theirs, you put yours again, and away you go, round and round, and you get to this point where you're not even sure what you were arguing about in the first place, or what you were talking about in the first place. It's lost on you, but you're not going to agree. That's the kind of picture I reckon Luke 7, verses 33 and 34 makes me think of. There's just no logic there. They've abandoned reason. They just do not want to see things God's way. So today's passage, yeah, it makes us think about the rejection of Jesus. What it means to reject Jesus. What it looks like to reject Jesus. What people are doing when they reject Jesus. I think these verses actually do two things. First thing is these verses challenge us in how we think about people. If you look at verse 28, the coming of the kingdom of God, it kind of turns everything upside down so that even the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than the greatest person outside the kingdom. So these verses, yeah, they challenge how we think about people. And secondly, these verses, I think, give us some clarity to see how ridiculous and irrational people can become when they've decided, in verses 33 to 34, that they will reject God and reject Jesus. So last week, the passage was far more positive. Last week, we we were thinking about Jesus and faith. Luke showed us the centurion who knew he wasn't worthy, and yet he asked Jesus for help and trusted that Jesus could help. And that centurion, we don't know his name, but his faith is held up as an example because Jesus says in chapter 7, verse 9, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. So last week was all about faith, what it looks like to trust Jesus. This week, we're getting to think about Jesus and rejection. So in 7, verse 30, it's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that reject Jesus because, well, they've already rejected John's message, his call for repentance, so of course they'll reject Jesus. And in verse 31, Jesus speaks plainly about the people of this generation, the people around him at that time, who, as you read it, you're thinking, yeah, it's the same people around us. We're among this generation. Jesus describes their rejection and likens it to the brattish, childish behaviour you see in kids and the irrational prejudice that comes out of just being determined to disagree. So the person that links this passage to last week's passage is John the Baptist. You met John the Baptist in last week's passage. Last week, we were told that John sent his messages to Jesus. In verses 19 and 20, they came with a question, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? You can kind of feel John's question, can't you? He's been preparing the way for Jesus, and now he's kind of stumbling. Is this the one? Am I, have I missed something here? I want to think that John just needs that kind of nudge in the right direction, just some reassurance, um, some help maybe to trust and have his faith in Jesus. 
I think that's what Jesus does by pointing him back to the Old Testament to say, remember that? That's what's now happening. But after pointing John back, Jesus says in verse 23, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. This encouragement to trust, not to stumble like that, but to trust. But then what we see in today's passage is far more than stumbling. This is outright rejection of Jesus. And so after John's messengers have left, Jesus talks about John kind of behind his back and talks about how John has prepared the way for him. So you pick it up in verse 24. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? I don't think... um, I don't think what Jesus is saying there is, you know, did you go out to the wilderness to see the fauna and the flora and those wonderful reeds they have out there near the Jordan River? I don't think that's the point. I think what he's saying is, when you went out there and saw John, you didn't see someone who's blowing here and there. You saw someone that was rock solid, determined, clear, straight down the line. He didn't blow from left to right. Um, back, if you keep fingering this passage and glance back in chapter 3, verse 7 and around there, You get the account of John as he begins his ministry after all the birth narrative stuff. Um, Back in Luke chapter 3, we're told John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. His message was to call people back to God, to call them to repent, to change their ways. And so in 3 verse 7 you read, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptised by him, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our... It doesn't sound like someone who's you know, blown here and there by the reeds, does it? By the wind. It sounds like someone who's straight down the line to the point, you no know, beating around the bush and digging in. So back to today's passage, 7 verse 24. Keep a finger in chapter 3 though. 7 verse 24. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? No. If not, what did you go out to see a man dressed in fine clothes? No, you certainly didn't. John wasn't dressed in fine clothes, quite the opposite. In fact, come back to chapter 3 and look at what he says about people who lived in their luxurious palaces. Look at how direct he is with Herod. 3 verse 19, but when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, you kind of got to read that verse slowly for it to sink in, don't you? And all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. And so there's John in prison, sends his messengers to Jesus to say, are you the one or are we to wait for someone else? Jesus reassures him. The messengers go back and Jesus continues to talk about John. He goes, did you go out in the wilderness when you went to see John? Did you go out to see some you know, politician type person? bit of this, bit of that, blowing here and there. No. You found a man who was blunt and to the point. I reckon if John was around today, I reckon the thing that would draw people to him was the fact that he just spoke the truth. He didn't sugarcoat anything. He just spoke God's word. And Luke 7 verse 26, Jesus says, what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, a more than a prophet. John is a lot like the prophets in the Old Testament, isn't he? Just everything he does makes you think of the Old Testament prophets. But he's also the last of the Old Covenant prophets. The New Covenant is coming in. He's the last of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament prophets. How's he greater than a prophet? Well, I can share the wisdom of the Thursday night men's growth group with you. Two ways that he's greater than 
any other prophet. The first one's there in verse 27. The other prophet spoke of him, said he would come. I think that's quoting Micah there. A second way he, he could be greater is because he's actually there to see Jesus arrive. So all the Old Testament prophets to that point spoke about what might happen in the future, and John kind of is that, on that overlap. No other prophet had that experience. But Jesus goes further than saying he's the greatest prophet. He says in verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. I'm not sure if anyone is not born of a woman. Yeah, that's the point. He's greater than anybody, is what Jesus is saying, which is a huge claim. John is the great. And when you look at the way Luke puts his gospel together, it is pretty amazing, the story of John. The way the angel predicted he would be born and so on. It, I mean, excluding Jesus, who is God the Son, become the Son of God. Excluding Jesus, yeah, yeah he, he is the greatest man. It's amazing. But actually, I don't think that's the real point of verse 28. I think the point is in the twist that comes in the second half of the verse. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. You've got to let that sink in, don't you? Jesus, he, he is bringing in the kingdom of God. His death and resurrection will mark the beginning of the kingdom of God with Jesus as king over everything. And anyone who is in that kingdom is greater than the greatest person outside the kingdom. And so at this point, John is still speaking of the coming of the kingdom. And it's like Jesus is playing around with words a little bit, but saying, John is great. He's amazing. You were attracted to him in the desert, but even the least person in the kingdom of God is greater. Everything's just turned upside down by Jesus. He changes everything. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Think about it for a second, because what Jesus says then is still true today. We put so much weight and so much emphasis on human achievement in this life. We push ourselves, we push our kids so hard to achieve and to make it in this world. But the thing that matters most <coughs> is that we have Jesus as our king, is that we are in the kingdom of God, that we live in the kingdom of God. That's the most important thing of all, more important than anything else. And even the least in the kingdom of God is greater than anyone who's not in the kingdom. Um, Luke then adds verses 29 and 30, which in our English Bible, it's in brackets, in parentheses. And you kind of think, well, that's because it doesn't quite fit. And I suppose it doesn't fit, but it's very important to what Luke is saying. So verses 29 and 30, they're an example, kind of an example of the second half of verse 28. The nobodies in this world, they've already been responding to the, the call of John to repent. And the somebodies in this world, well, they've already been rejecting John's message. And what you do to John's message, you'll do to Jesus. You're doing to God. So the nobodies, even the tax collectors, they acknowledge the truth of what Jesus has said. So verse 29, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptised by John. They believed what John called them to do, repent, turn back to God. And so when Jesus comes, yeah, they accept that too. They're acknowledging God is just, God is right. Whereas the somebodies, the Pharisees and the experts in the law, and as some of you know because you've got different versions of the Bible, yours might say just lawyers. If it's any comfort, it's not talking about retired lawyers. <laughs> so verse 30, but the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptised by John. 
Those who rejected John reject Jesus. They don't acknowledge God's right. They don't acknowledge God's ways at all. Verses 29 and 30, they're important to what Luke's showing us because he finishes on the same point. If you look ahead in verse 35, but wisdom is proved right or proved just by all her children. Those who accept God, those who respond to John, those who respond to Jesus, they're the wise ones. They're the children of wisdom. But at the moment, Jesus is speaking to those who reject him. So the context, once again, verse 24 tells us John's messengers have left. They return back to John with Jesus' message. After they've gone, Jesus turns the temperature up on everyone who's still there by talking about John and talking about how they're rejecting him and how they're rejecting basically turning the the blowtorch on these people who are left after the messengers leave. John stumbled, if you like, but the bunch of these people listening, they're not even inclined to trust Jesus at all. They're rejecting him. They're determined to reject him. And then come then to verses 31 to 34, they kind of show us what this rejection of Jesus will look like. And it's childish for a start, like selfish, brattish kids. So verse 31, Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? And if you're there that day, you're hearing him say, what can I compare you to? And we should hear similar. What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to one another, we played the pipe for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't cry. It's like saying these people, they're like kids you just can't please. They're selfish brats. You play nice music, they won't dance. You play sad music, they won't cry. They've just got no interest at all. They're stubborn and unwilling to get on. And then Jesus goes on in verse 33. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. And on verse 34, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You can see what he's saying, can't you? It's just stupid behaviour, irrational behaviour. These people will not be happy. They will not listen. They will not see reason. They're foolish. And in verse 35, but wisdom's proved right by all her children, by all the people who do respond positively to Jesus, put their trust in him. So today's passage, yeah, it makes us think about the rejection of Jesus and what it looks like. It gives us, this passage gives us two things to go away and continue to think about. The first one is that challenge in verse 28, the way the coming of the kingdom just turns everything upside down so that what matters to us is that we're trusting in Jesus. What matters to us is that everyone around us, our friends, our family, that they're trusting in Jesus. So these verses challenge us to think about people differently. And the second thing they do is they give us some clarity to see how ridiculous and how irrational people can become when they've decided that they are going to reject God and reject Jesus. And so you know, what lessons do we kind of learn about Jesus and the rejection of him? At the very least, we should learn to expect people to refuse to accept the gospel of Jesus. And for their reasons to be as, as irrational as these ones that you've got here. Unreasonable, perhaps. If you become a Christian, if it was, if the, the way you became a Christian, if it was just a matter of having the truth explained to you, if it was that simple, just you know, reason this out with someone and they become a Christian, 
If it was that simple, there'd be a lot more Christians, wouldn't there? But it's not like connecting wires. It's more complicated because we're people. We're complicated people. We have all sorts of emotions and reasons. It's only God who can work on our heart and change us. Um, when I did MTS many years ago, kind of like what Tom's doing up in Cairns, I remember meeting reading the Bible with a first-year uni student, and he became keen. He joined a Bible study group. We stopped meeting. He was now in a, in a Bible study group, and I thought he was all on board, had become a Christian and so on. But down the track, he asked to catch up, and we, we had a little catch-up, and he explained, well, actually, I'm, I can't call myself a Christian because if I accept that it's true then I'm saying my family are going to hell. There's no logic there. No logic. If it's true, will you pray for your family and you, you try to help them come to understand what you've come to understand? That's kind of like you know, the soft rejection of Christianity, the friendly rejection of Christianity. But then there's also the aggressive, angry rejection of the gospel that you see where people just slam Christians, totally biased against Christians, outspokenly opposed to Christians. It almost feels like sometimes Christians are, are picked on for no reason at all. Every other kind of religion around in Australia gets an easy go and Christians get hammered. It's kind of, you know, that's what you expect. So I suppose that's one thing to think about as you think about what rejection of Jesus looks like. Not everyone's going to respond to the gospel. I think, too, we should go home thinking more about verse 28 as well because... What matters more than anything else is that we are in the kingdom of God. And what matters for our friends, our family, what matters for them more than anything else is that they are in the kingdom of God. Without Jesus, everything's futile. Even the greatest person in the world is nothing if they're not in the kingdom of God. I'm not sure when you may have last moved house, but you know how you go through the house working out, we'll take that, we'll get rid of that, we'll take that, we'll get rid of that. Especially if you're downsizing, there's a lot more stuff you're not going to take with you. So if you've got your post-it stickers and went around the house and put post-it stickers on the stuff you're going to take with you, you know, that picture. What if you did a similar thing with your life, walking through your life, putting the post-it sticker on the stuff you know you'll have with you in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven? It narrows it down a little bit, doesn't it? It's only going to be people. It's not going to be all of them either. And when you think about it like that, yeah, it makes you pray. It makes you pray like mad because you're not the one who can change these complicated people who don't trust in Jesus and make them trust in Jesus. That's God's work. He does that. Thinking about it like that kind of puts things in perspective, doesn't it? So it's a very short passage, this, but it does remind us that we aren't just like wires, clicking together, turn it on. We're complicated. What matters, though, is that we respond positively to the gospel of Jesus and put our trust in his death and his resurrection. It's not something that we can make other people do. You look at the irrational way people will oppose the gospel, you get a glimpse of it here, and it makes you pray. So I'm going to pray for us, and we've still got plenty of time, so maybe I should pray slow. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this short part of Luke's Gospel. Lord, thank you for the way that it makes us think about what matters and what doesn't matter in life. Father, we thank you for the incredible way that you've made it possible for each one of us here to hear the truth about Jesus. Thank you for the amazing way you've worked in hearts and minds to make it possible for us to put our trust in Jesus. 
we pray that our trust would be somewhat like the centurion, knowing that we're not worthy, but continuing to ask you for forgiveness and trusting that Jesus can do that. Lord, we pray too for family and for friends who, as far as we can see, are not in your kingdom, not trusting in Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would be at work in their hearts to changing them. And Lord, we pray that as Christians living in this generation, in this world, we pray that we would be wise, that we wouldn't be naive. We pray that we'd be clear and firm with the truth. Lord, we pray that we might even be inspired by the way that John stuck to the truth too. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.